This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Ten years ago, the late, great Roy Halladay gave Phillies fans one of their fondest memories, a perfect game in Miami against the then-Florida Marlins. Lucky enough to spend some time with longtime Phillies beat writer from MLB.com, Todd Zalecki, who is also the author of a really interesting new book titled Doc, The Life of Roy Halladay. Todd, uh, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. I hope you and yours are, are doing safe. It's weird not having baseball right now this time of year, man. It is really strange. I've been covering the Phillies uh, on a daily basis since 2003. And, uh, you know, so my entire life in the summers during the baseball season is pretty much spent at the ballpark. And so this is like, I don't even recognize this, you know, I don't recognize this world in a lot of ways. But, you know, especially for me, being at home and not being at a ballpark has just been totally surreal. It absolutely has been. We're definitely going to dive deeper into your book, but the first thing that I want to focus on is, is the date 10 years ago, May 29th, 2010, Sun Life Stadium. Uh, what do you remember, Todd, and what have you learned about that night, that perfect game Roy Halladay had against the Marlins? You know, I, I think what was interesting about that game going into it is Roy had his worst start with the Phillies and the start right before that. And he got shelled against the Red Sox. Uh, he had thrown a bunch of, you know, some high pitch count games before that. And people were questioning him on, it. are you being overworked? Uh, are you tired? And so Roy actually went into that game with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Um, he wanted to kind of shut up the critics, you know, and, and, and silence the questions that were being asked. And he went into that game, he, he always went into that game, into every game prepared, but he had a little bit of an extra edge uh, going into that start that night in Miami. And you mentioned the, the, how he got shelled against Boston the outing before, and in your book you really go into great detail about his routine, and the, the chapter in his routine is right before the chapter about the perfect game, and you go day one, day two, day three, day four, because there's four days usually in between a start. What did you learn about Roy's routine from one start to another? You know, I, I learned that it never changed, and I, and I learned that he needed it to stay the same uh, so he could feel successful. So much of Roy's success was because of his mental strength and his, his mental approach to the game. And early in his career, he didn't really have a routine. He really didn't prepare mentally. Uh, but he, he realized that he, if he, he almost had like boxes he needed to check every day. And if he checked all the boxes every day, so like the first day would be running and some weight training, you know, there's a lot of film study. If he checked all those boxes, it would allow him to step on the mound and feel confident because, and he would feel confident because he felt like I literally did everything I could possibly do 
to get ready to pitch this game. And if I lose, you know what, um, at least I know I did everything I could to put myself in the best position to succeed. And if he didn't check a box, so like say he decided, you know what, I'm not going to do any cardio today. Well, then he would get on the mound and he wouldn't, he'd be like, you know, am I, am I prepared here? Am I going to get tired? I didn't, I didn't do my cardio this week. I didn't study enough film. Um, am I, do I know the hitters well enough? He wouldn't feel good about himself. And so uh, after that start against Boston, he went almost as soon as the start ended, he went and got his post-start arm care routine done, and then he started preparing for the next start. And he, he, everything was down to almost the minute. I mean, Shane Victorino said, hey, I always knew at 12.35 and 30 seconds where Roy Halladay would be the day after his start because he was always doing the same thing at the same time. You know, I, I didn't remember this because I'm not going to lie, Todd. That night, I remember that night vividly, and I remember watching him get the final out. But we, a lot of us were watching hockey that night because it was, it was game one of the Stanley Cup final between the Flyers and, and Chicago. So your, your book reminded me that he wasn't sharp in the first couple of innings that night against the Marlins. He had a lot of pitches after the first two innings, and he really had to pick things up. Why do you think he was able to pick things up after the second and really get into a groove? You know, I, I think he was able to get in, into a group. So he had like three three-ball counts in the first two innings. And I talked with uh, Cole Hamels and, and Jamie Moyer. They were sitting on the right side of the dugout that game. They were even saying to themselves, like, he doesn't look too sharp right now. <laughs> but but the thing with Roy is he did not – he never let those things affect him. You know, I just talked about his mental approach. He, he, he really hammered home this philosophy of – the next pitch, focus only on the next pitch. So those 31 pitches that he threw in the first two innings, the three three-ball counts, once they were over with, they were done with. And because he was so aggressive, he was always attacking the strike zone. He wasn't one of these guys that would, you know, he would waste a, a two-strike pitch to try to get a guy to chase. He never did that stuff. And because he was aggressive, uh, continually aggressive, didn't worry about the last pitch, it just, I think, allowed him to stay focused and to, and it allowed him to get in that into a situation where he started to get into a groove a little bit, and that's exactly what he did. I mean, after those first two innings, he really started to become more economical with his pitches. He started getting the ball in the strike zone a little bit more, and then once a guy like that starts his, you know, almost the the, the muscle memory kicks in in terms of mechanics. He's really not going to stop. He's really not going to stop, and everything really kind of snowballed from that third inning on. After the game, he was so complimentary of Carlos Ruiz as he always was. He, he felt he felt that he and Carlos Ruiz were always always on the same page. He rarely ever shook him off. Why were they able to work so well together, Todd? It, it really started uh, that spring. When they went to uh, they, they they pitched in a minor league or Roy pitched in a minor league game against the Yankees uh, in spring training, and they they rode they drove over together from Clearwater to Tampa, and and Shooch basically told him was like, listen, uh, you know I I really care about my pitcher's success, and and they kind of talked about personal life, and they they built this rapport, and. Roy said after his career, one of the things that he liked about Chooch so much is they almost seem to be working on the same wavelength, the same brain, and 
Chooch could kind of maybe mix up the game plan a little bit, which in talking to other catchers that caught Roy throughout his career, you never changed his game plan. Roy had a game plan, and he demanded that his catcher stick to it. But he had this next-level trust with Chooch. So in the fifth inning, if Chooch started to see something, he would say, all right, I know Roy said this, but I'm going to try that, try something different. And Roy actually trusted him. So if, if Chooch called for a pitch in a different spot in a different location that he didn't expect – he actually trusted him, and I've talked to enough pitchers over the years to know that you have to have the conviction to throw a pitch in a certain count, and, and, and he did. He, when, when Chooch put a finger down, he, he believed that that was the correct pitch to throw. It was amazing how well they worked together. Doc only pitched in Philadelphia for four years, yet, as you know, he's so revered by Phillies fans. And your book talks it goes throughout his entire life. It starts with his childhood, his days with the Blue Jays, his struggles with the Blue Jays, bouncing back, getting traded to the Phillies, his days with the Phillies, and then after his career. What do you, what do you think Phillies fans and Roy fans are going to learn from reading your book? You know, I, I think they're going to learn, uh, you know, how hard driven he was. You know, he was driven hard um, from childhood to be to be a successful pitcher. And I think they're going to really kind of understand uh, how important the mental aspect of the game was to him and, and how much he struggled with it early in his career. You know, I think everybody, certainly Phillies fans for sure, because when he came to Philly, he was this, you know, Cy Young winner, AL East dominator. But this was somebody who early in his career really battled uh, confidence issues, anxiety issues. Uh, you know, he was almost out of the bit. You know, he was a few bad months away from maybe even being released from the Blue Jays in 2001. I mean, that's how that's how bad he was in that 2000, 2000 season in the spring of 2001. But, you know, how a guy can almost will himself to resurrecting his career. You know, so I think they'll learn that. And then I think they'll also learn how how that single-mindedness to be the best in a way led to his led to his downfall because he he had pushed himself and worked so hard throughout his entire career. He he injured his back and those last 2 years with the Phillies, he was doing anything he could to try to stay on the field and you know uh, sadly, you know, it, it led to taking pain medications, and 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 it snowballed from there. I I was really fascinated by his his rebound from the struggles he had in Toronto because he was really bad. His ERA, as you noted in your book, and it's one of the titles of your chapters, was over ten, which is one of the worst ERAs in a season in the history. It's amazing that somebody who was ar- arguably the best pitcher of his era also has one of the worst ERAs in the in the history of the sport. But he was able to bounce back by not chance per se, but it's interesting. He he put so much time and so much thought into that mental ABCs of pitching book by Harvey Harvey Dorfman, and. It's it's incredible. It's an incredible story how he came in, in, in how he how he acquired that book because his wife Brandy was basically in the bookstore just picking books off of the shelves and she's like, oh, this will be interesting. Uh, you know, h- how fascinating did you find that part of of Roy's rebound from his struggles? Yeah, absolutely. Because you think about it and you go, what if Brandy goes to the bookstore and doesn't walk through the sports section there? I mean, she went like to the self help section and. And tried to find all these, you know, like chicken soup for the soul type books, right? And 
And she's like, yeah, let me just walk through the sports section here and see if there's anything. And if that book hadn't been facing out, maybe she doesn't see it. Maybe she doesn't pick it up. Maybe Roy Halladay never hears about Harvey Dorfman or maybe hears about him too late. So you think about those little happenstances in life and how it changed him. And, but Roy got the book. He picked it up. He started to flip through it, and he said this after his career was over. He he, he told some Phillies prospects um, at a seminar at Citizens Bank Park in I think it was January of 2016. He said, you know, I picked up this book, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this guy is writing about my life. It's almost like he's inside my head because Harvey Dorfman, the famous sports psychologist, he talked – he had – he knew what went on in people's minds uh, in terms of confidence issues, worrying too much about the big picture, and it really connected with Roy. And he started to really follow, you know, Harvey Dorfman's teachings. And not only did he read the book, he read the book, he carried the book everywhere he went throughout the rest of his career. He read it constantly before starts, certain chapters, but he also met Harvey Dorfman and talked to him constantly. They developed this incredibly close relationship um, some said he was like a second father to Roy and they emailed they called they texted all that stuff and and that and Roy Halladay said it many many times without Harvey you know Harvey Dorfman was the most influential person on his baseball career what what other stories Todd do you think readers will be most drawn to in your book you know, I, I think – so it, it's interesting. I've gotten some early feedback from people that have read it, and uh, there's some really just kind of like fun baseball stories in there. You know, people always like to know, uh, you know, what does a catcher – when a pitcher is on the mound and a catcher comes out to talk to him, like, what are they talking about exactly? You know, what, it, what goes on before a game? And I, I talked to a whole bunch of Roy's catchers with the Blue Jays and with the Phillies. And so I have a lot of fun stories in there about Roy's kind of developing relationship with catchers from his early part of his career uh, toward the, toward the you know, his Phillies years when he was very well established. And people seem to really like that. Um, you know, you mentioned that chapter where I, I break down his workout routine. You know, I, I, I think that's just a cool look into – you know, what exactly did he do to prepare, you know, and, and, and to talk to people that were there with him while he did it, I thought was, you know, that people have seemed to be really enjoying that, um, you know, because he was so detail-oriented, you know, I, I talked with Chad Durbin about, I asked him about Roy's film study, and he would say, you know, I would sit behind Roy on a plane and because we had similar, we had the same pitching repertoire. He's like he was much better than me, but we had the similar pitches. And so he, Roy would have two iPads out uh, on his tray tables on the, on the plane. On the on the left uh, iPad on the left would be the last twenty appearances a hitter had against a right-handed pitcher. iPad on the right would be the last ten plate appearances he had against Roy. And Roy would just study it the whole flight. You know, so he knew every hitter. If, if a hitter made an adjustment from the last time he saw him. You know, he knew about it. And just those little details, um, you know, that helped make Roy great. And also, I just, I, to me, I was always fascinated by the things that Roy needed to do mentally to prepare and how he, it allowed him to overcome things that happened uh, early in the game. 
you know, uh, I write about the start in Game Five of the 2011 NLDS of Chris Carpenter. You know, he 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 struggled that first inning. He gave up a first inning run, but he dialed in and he threw. He he didn't allow a run the rest of the way. The Phillies lost that game, obviously, but just those little type of details I think that people will enjoy. I feel like Todd, he was as much as as much interested and enjoyed the routine as much as he did playing the actual game. Did you get that sense as well? Yes, I think for for Roy that was that was part of the competition aspect that that he did enjoy. You know, he certainly enjoyed being on the mound, but uh you know, I think he looked at that as a challenge, you know. He he had to do more than everybody else. In fact, before that first postseason start he had against the Reds when he threw the no-hitter in uh, Game 1 of the 2010 NLDS, he had nine days to prepare from his final start before that Game 1. And Roy said the whole reason that Roy wanted to come to Philly was because he had never pitched in the postseason, and he just wanted to know could he do it. He had seen all of his best you – know, Chris Carpenter's best friend won a World Series at the Cardinals. He had seen all these other pitchers that he had dominated in the regular season and then win a World Series – and he just so badly wanted to know what if I got to the postseason, could I do it too? Would I would I be good? Would I feel pressure? Would I be bad? And he used those nine days um, to prepare for the Reds. He said he never felt more confident stepping on the mound than Game One because he knew that he he worked harder in those nine days. He 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 knew that the Reds, nobody on the Reds could outwork him in those nine days. Let me put it put it to you that way. He studied every hitter. He not only studied every hitter, he studied pitchers that he thought might hit in that game. So, like, he said, you know what, if Edison Volquez gets knocked out early, who are the pitchers that might have to come in long relief and maybe pit and hit? So he studied the pitchers that he thought might hit, and sure enough, that actually happened, and uh, he ended up getting him out, Travis Woods. So the preparation, I think, he looked at as a challenge and a way to not guarantee, because there were never any guarantees, but put him in the best position to beat the other team as he possibly could. I found it so interesting that you brought up the, the, the playoff no-hitter, and, and this describes this really gives an insight into the detail of your book. He was watching Cliff Lee pitch for Texas against the Rays before the playoff no-hitter, and Lee's dealing, of course, and, and Roy's thinking, man, this is the guy that I kind of replaced in a sense, and he's out there dealing, and i got to go for my first playoff start, and i got to follow this. So that, it's, that's just kind of the interesting detail that you have in your book. In your acknowledgments, Todd, you wrote that one of the reasons why you wanted to write this is because of how Roy wanted to help others in retirement. What stood out to you about Doc, Doc Halliday's life after baseball? Well, yeah, I thought it was so fascinating. You know, so like think about Roy Halley, a Hall of Fame pitcher, right? He's made over a hundred fifty million dollars in his career, probably probably more than that. Uh, players like that typically, you know, in terms of like their next careers, either they'll retire and they'll just fish and golf and and take vacations, right? And you don't really hear from them again. They'll become like a club ambassador. Well. You know they'll play some golf with some clients of the you know big clients from the from the Phillies. You know they might you know get in a uniform for a week as a guest instructor. Those are the maybe be broadcaster. Those are the jobs that those people typically seem to do. But Roy Halladay was so affected uh, by Harvey Dorfman, and he believed so strongly in 
sports psychology and mental skills and mental strength and getting that mental edge, that he said, you know what, I can golf and fish, yeah, okay, but I want to really help people. Because he knew that there were other people out there struggling like him mentally, and if he he felt that if he could help them out like Harvey helped him, he would be doing a service to people. And he and he and he, that was something that he wanted to do. And so that was something that, that always intrigued me. And I felt that he had so much knowledge and so much perspective that I tried to, throughout my research, get as much of that in the book as I possibly could. So you know, indirectly, you know, it certainly doesn't replace Roy saying it firsthand. But indirectly, maybe somebody could, that's you know a, a player, an athlete, or whatever, just a person is struggling with something mentally. Uh, you know, maybe they could pick up this book and and pick up some things that that helped Roy Halladay become a success. The chapter on his death was so emotional, with all the different reactions you got, including Brandy's. How difficult was it to write that chapter? Easily, the one of the toughest things, or the toughest thing that I've that I've ever written, just because of how emotional it was. You know, uh, I had built up a relationship uh, with Brandy over the year last year, and kind of had been dreading talking about that day. But I knew I I had to talk to her about that day for the book, um, and just just how sad it was, because in talking to Brandy and, and members of his family, they really believed. You know, he had been in and out of rehab a couple times. He was really working hard to improve his life and, and get past you know the addictions that he was struggling with. And to have, you know, then then he dies obviously tragically in a in a plane crash. But just the just how that day unfolded, you know, like he was supposed to be going to uh his youngest son Ryan's, you know, recital at school and you know, Brandy's trying to get the boys home after she finds out that he was in the plane, and, and then a friend texts uh, text Braden, their oldest son, "Hey, I heard your dad died in a plane crash. I saw on Twitter. Is this true?" And and he hadn't even heard yet. So to find, you know, that was just the, that was really tough. That was a really tough uh, moment of the conversation. Was like, man, that is, you know, as a parent, I can't even imagine what that would be like. And, and just to know that you know she wanted she wanted to be the first person to to tell her kids, but in today's day and age, he's a celebrity. Word got out; it was on Twitter, and then somebody like flippantly almost texts one of the boys and says, "Hey, I heard your dad died in a plane crash. Is that true?" It's like, oh my gosh, it's just awful, just awful. The final chapter of the book, Todd, chapter 23, is titled The Legacy. After all your research and reporting on Roy Halladay, what legacy do you think Doc left behind? And what ways do you think that legacy, legacy is shared throughout your book? You know, I, I think his legacy, he, he still made a, left a positive impact on a lot of people. And I think what I tried to convey throughout the book is... Um, you know, because certainly a lot of people have, they've read the NTSB reports, they've read the coroner's report, you know, they've drawn their own conclusions about Roy Halladay. And that moment, those struggles, in my mind, and in the minds of, I mean, I talked to more than 100 people for this book, in the minds of all those people, those struggles don't negate all of the positive, the positive impacts that he made on people, on cities, 
you know, in baseball. You know, I, I when I, I talk to people that hadn't talked about him really since since he died, and that they, you know, they broke down, they they they, they welled up because he, he he meant so much to them. And these weren't people that were like best friends. These were people that, you know, I I caught Doc twenty times eighteen years ago. You know that type of thing. So I think his legacy is not just his excellence as, as a pitcher, but his impact as as a person. And by all counts, he was a great person. Um, I think his legacy is that you know he wanted to continue to help people on the on the mental side of of, of baseball and just on the mental side off the field. And I, I hope I conveyed that in the book. And also, you know, he, this was somebody who was pushed really hard as a kid. And he made a point as he coached his boys um, to coach them differently. And I think it was important for him to make sure that kids felt good about themselves, confident about themselves, that they had fun playing baseball, that they didn't have pressure playing baseball. And that's something I think that Roy's wife, Brandy, wants to try to continue to carry on as life goes forward. And and I think she hopes that that's like a way of carrying on Roy's legacy is, you know, being a positive impact on youth sports as well. Well, he he lived a remarkable life, even though it ended sadly and, and it ended way too soon. Uh, the book is Doc, The Life of Roy Halliday by Todd Selecki. Todd, where can where can people get your book? How can they get your book? You know, basically anywhere that you can get a book online now. So, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, you know, the Triumph Books is the publisher. They sell it on their website. Um, You know, there's independent bookstores, websites that you can go to. Uh, Unfortunately, because of the times we're in right now, you can't actually walk into a bookstore. I know some Barnes & Nobles have been open and, you know, doing curbside pickups in Jersey. So, you know, it's, you know... Anywhere you think you might be able to find it, just type in, you know, Google it up, and uh, hopefully people can get it and, and they'll enjoy it. The, the early feedback has been really, really nice to hear. Todd, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it, and good luck with the book. Thanks, I appreciate it, Dave. Thanks, a lot. thanks a lot. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.